This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. So they're moving ahead with a plan, y'all, but we seem to be in some kind of virtual loop here. And we got to get ourselves out of it. And we got to get out out quick. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous. The true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. America's chickens! Coming home! You're gonna sing to swim, you're gonna learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're gonna learn the truth. Alternative Activist Empowerment Talk Radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Passes a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. You just don't give up, just don't give up. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening, everyone. Hope you are well, that you are staying safe, and welcome to our common ground. We're glad to have you with us, and uh, for those of you who are new to us, we've been here since 1985, and we are still transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Uh, we do, before we get into our episode tonight uh, and talk with our guests, which I believe you are going to find absolutely intriguing, I do want to make some notes. You know, this program is, we're, we're trying to pack too much into two hours. Uh, this program for a very long time when we were doing terrestrial radio, um, we did it five days a week, sometimes six days a week, sometimes seven days a week, and we did it for three hours, and it worked for us because it ignited uh, a number of topics. And we used to always begin our broadcast with some highlights of the news, and because um, we're trying to pack so much in, I have been very neglectful in that regard. And I'll talk to you later on about how I'm going to fix that because, you know, I've always got an end game. Um, for those of you who are new to us, uh, you can join us at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG and join all of the folks who exchange with us during this broadcast in our live chat room. It is not moderated except for I do find that I have to... Um, Control the trolls <laughs> in the era of um, Trump. 
But I do want to make these notes before we begin. We want to ask you to keep your eye on the case of Ahmad Aubrey and the case of Breonna Taylor. I am particularly uh, concerned about what's going on with the prosecution and how that is going to be handled in the state of Kentucky. One of uh, Moscow Mitch's favorite people, favorite colored people, has been charged with prosecuting that case, so keep your eye on that. I do want to extend to my Grand Prince number one, Uh, how proud I am of his graduation and the commencement ceremony that was conducted by LeBron James tonight, a wonderful celebration with um, former President Barack Obama as the commencement speaker, hashtag graduate together. Miles Hughes, I just want you to know we are so proud of you. St. Sebastian School is not an easy academic program. Your STEM program at MIT was not easy, and you got through it like a boss. And you have proven over and over that you are the prince in my life. And congratulations in the class of 2020. Also, I want to note, um, Paul Manafort was released from prison this week, you ought to be concerned. It is the clarion call. It is the warning bell that we live now in an America which is a kleptocracy, an autocracy, and there is no more, as I have been saying for the last two and a half years, there is no more government by the people. You have no government that you control. Despite the fact that this man was impeached, he has set up a kleptocracy under a criminal, global criminal empire. So don't take it lightly about how important November 3rd, 2000. 20 is going to be for all of us. As we underlined last week and the week before, there is a price to pay. We always pay a price. And paying that price has to be part of the formula in our survival. Um, the pandemic, of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic continues. Use your grandmother's common sense. As much as you can, stay home. For those of you who of you who can't protect yourself and make sure that you are asking others to protect you by keeping the distance, not dealing with people who don't wear masks. And now we are hearing that there is something about the conduction and the eye eye passage. So just be safe. And be safe with your children. I um, encourage you to make sure that your children are washing their hands and they understand that it is a serious matter. 
and it's not about playing around, and make sure your children are wearing masks. Because the pandemic, despite what we are hearing from the White House and what the media continues to report and repeat nonsense, inaccuracies, and straight-up lies in America continues. And it, the germs, the virus, or however you want to characterize it, doesn't choose, doesn't select. It just takes. Once again, thank you for being with us and here at Our Common Ground tonight. We're going to be talking uh, a a number of of, uh, topics, but the core of the topic really has to do with race and the medical community and system. In the context of history and the import of what we have faced with health disparities Uh, the lack of access to medical care and the cost of medical care uh, contemporarily. Our guest tonight is Dr. Deidre Cooper-Owens. She's the Linda and Charles Wilson Professor in the History of Medicine and Director of the Humanities in Medicine Program at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Dr. Cooper Owens earned her PhD from UCLA in history and wrote an award-winning dissertation while she was there. She's a popular public speaker. She's published articles, essays, books, and her first book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology won the 2018 Darlene Clark Hine Book Award from the OAH as the best book written in African-American women's and gender history. You know, the Tuskegee syphilis study is one of the most well-known events in the history of African-Americans and medicine, but it is not singular. The issues of race and racism continue to influence the development of American medicine and public health. And tonight with Dr. Deidre Cooper-Owens, we are going to explore and examine the historical framework for understanding the contributions and the experiences of black people in the healthcare system, both private and public and the experiences of African Americans as patients and subjects of trial. What we want to do is to understand the contemporary import during the COVID-19 pandemic of this history. There was Brown versus the Board of Education around public education. But there were also equivalent laws and cases around black care and health delivery. And that is what we are going to be discussing with Dr. Cooper Owens tonight. 
You know, I grew up in the Jim Crow South. Most of you know that. And um, in my segregated community of West Palm Beach, Florida, there was a black hospital. And most think of that hospital as part of the contribution, as part of um, what black people did to survive segregation. But they never think, or I never heard anyone having any conversations about it, that that hospital, like many 129 black hospitals throughout the country, was to protect with limited health care the black employees of wealthy people who were the maids, the servants, the chauffeurs, the cooks, the lawn maintenance people of rich people on the island of Palm Beach. Particularly one of those estates was the post estate Mar-a-Lago. The other is that those hospitals, in addition to providing the limited and only service to black black um, citizens, kept blacks out of white hospitals. That's the history. That's part of the history. And that's why it's so important for us to be talking with a historian, a expert on the subject, and I hope you'll stay with us. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Dr. Deidre Cooper Owens. When you walk to the garden, The first, the public first came to know about the syphilis study in July, on July 25th, 1972. These are some of the editorial co- cartoons that came out at the time that the syphilis study was first uh, brought to light. And I always talk about the public revelation in terms of the syphilis study in that because it was known in the medical community. In the close to thir- the 30 years that the story first broke, the study has moved from being a singular historical event to a powerful metaphor. Tuskegee has come to symbolize racism in medicine, misconduct in human research, the arrogance of physicians, and government abuse of black people. Tuskegee also represents a devastating wound for many black people. On May, 20, on May 16, 1997, President Clinton in a very moving White House ceremony, apologized for the Tuskegee syphilis study. Actually, he apologized for the United States public health study at Tuskegee, an important corrective, I think, because it places responsibility for the study in the hands of the United States Public Health Service rather than those of Tuskegee Institute. Although facilities and staff of Tuskegee Institute were used in the study, primary direction for it came from the government under the auspices of the Public Health Service. 
At the White House ceremony, when President Clinton uttered the words, I am sorry, tears streamed down the faces of many black people in the audience. Audible sobs could be heard. These tears vividly demonstrated that the pain inflicted by the syphilis study was not limited to the citizens of Macon County. For for many African Americans, the fact that the Tuskegee syphilis study occurred at all proves that black life is often not valued in America. The Tuskegee syphilis study is the most well-known episode in African American medical history. We cannot let it be the only lens through which we examine the history of African Americans in medicine. One historical event cannot fully explain the long and complicated relationship of African Americans in medicine. In addition, if we use the syphilis study as the primary lens to view the history of African Americans in medicine, we see African Americans only as victims and lose sight of the strength and resilience of the black community and the contributions of African-American health care providers. History clearly reveals that African-Americans have not been helpless victims in the face of oppression, but have developed strategies and institutions to provide care, improve health, advance black health care professionals, and to battle medical racism. The history of African Americans in medicine is not only about trauma and scars, but about strength, healing, and achievement. A wider history of African Americans in medicine shows what Manning Marable and Leith Mullins, two prominent African American study scholars, have called voices of resistance, reform, and renewal. This evening, we will see that the history of African Americans in medicine is just not about Tuskegee. We'll all be safe from Satan when the thunder rolls. We just gotta keep the devil way down in the hole. And now back to Janice. And we're going to keep the devil down, way down in the hole. Dr. Deidre Cooper. I am so glad to have you with us tonight. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. And I will just say one Deirdre, because my my mother was was trying to be different and gave me an uh-huh. R. <laughs> so I have two R's. So it's Deirdre uh, Cooper Owens. But thank you so much for having me. I am so happy to be here. Well, Deirdre. <laughs> thank you. Mom, I got it right. <laughs> I'm glad you um, uh, brought that up because our, our parents really, you know, when 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 they when they did the parenting part, they really had was on a mission and had purpose. Parenting was mm-hmm. purpose, and it started with that name. Oh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I I played that clip because it was. Um, uh, really, I think that it's really important for people when we start, when we talk about race and medicine, mm-hmm. to understand that it really isn't just the the 
the Tuskegee experiment was in the context of a lot of things and a lot of history. And you were just the perfect person for us to talk about it. But I'd like to start with the discussion for you to explain um, and discuss why it is important for us to know this history. And, 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 you know, I only know two historians that specialize in, in, um, in, in, in this history. Um, mm-hmm. And most people don't know any to understand right. that, that, that the issue of race, racism in medicine has been a topic of research and study. Mm-hmm. So why is it important for us to know this, especially yes. at a time mm-hmm. when we're facing a plague? That's right. Yes. Thank you so much. And first, I just want to thank you for playing that clip by Dr. Vanessa Northington Gamble, who is a dear friend, but also a mentor. And I follow in her footsteps. She was the first um, black person in this country, black woman in this country to create a class on the history of race, racism, and medicine. Um, she is an MD, PhD, and she is still doing great work to uh, uncover and reveal our history um, and also treat our people. And so she, it, it, it just warmed my heart to be able to hear her um, in that speech. But yeah, Are you so on a microphone? Is there, is there a way for you to turn up your volume? I am on my phone, unfortunately. I can okay. try okay. my best. Is, is this better or it's not? Better? No, it's, yeah, it, it's so, better. So. Okay. Um, so, yeah, um, I think our history is important, um, largely because we all have a medical experience. There are two things that are certain in this world. We are going to be born and we will die. And typically those experiences um, are are either ushered in or ushered out by those who are charged to care for us in some capacity. And so when we start to think about the ways that the history of racism in particular and anti-blackness um, very specifically have impacted our community, I often go back to 1993 yellow fever epidemic. And I use that case study um, with Athlon Jones and Richard Allen, both early uh, African-American leaders, Richard Allen, most famously known for founding the uh, AME Church in the African Methodist Episcopal uh, denomination. And so what happened in 1793, Philadelphia, still uh, the largest city that had a concentration of free people of color, as they were called, suffered from a great yellow fever epidemic. Benjamin Rush who was a quote-unquote founding father, but also known as the father of American medicine, studied the difference or the alleged differences biologically between black people and white people. And so Benjamin Rush believed that black people were somehow immune to yellow fever because he didn't believe that they were dying. And so what he did, he went to Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, and he said, I need you to encourage your people to get out here and help our, to help our city. And so Richard uh, Allen, Absalom Jones, they answered the call. 
Black people literally were on the front lines. They were the nurses. They were the grave diggers. They were the caretakers. They were the people who changed diapers, uh, clothing, all of these kinds of things. And then what begins to happen, black people start to die disproportionately. By 1790, there were only 2,000 blacks. About uh, a little bit over 10% of the population, black population, died from yellow fever. Richard Allen even. Can you hear me? Yes. You hear me? Yes, I can. Hello? Oh, okay. Yes, I can can hear you. Okay, great. Richard Allen even suffered from this, from, from yellow fever, nearly losing his life. After all was said and done, and, and, and African-Americans had done so much to help the city of Philadelphia recover, an Irish-born man, Matthew Carey, then writes a, a pamphlet actually saying that African-Americans were looting, stealing, um, great, essentially robbing the houses of those who were uh, the recently deceased white patients that black people had cared for. And so you then had the kind of politics of anti-blackness tied up in the pandemic, right? He didn't see that these were people who were essentially called upon by white leaders to help the, to help the city, right? To essentially help a new nation. He could only see them through the lens of criminality and pathology. By the fourth printing, Richard Allen and Absalon Jones wrote a rejoinder essentially stating the, the medical science was wrong, that black people were not immune, that black people were not thieves, that black people were not exploiters, that in fact black people were the ones who were doing most of the dirty work, their own um, susceptibility, uh, susceptibility to getting sick because they were on the front lines. And so this really, for me, marks a moment in American history where you start to see that the politics of anti-blackness and white supremacy permeate every facet of life for black people, even medically. And so we can then have this conversation with COVID-19. Who are, especially in a lot of the urban areas, who are the people who are driving the buses and the subways and delivering mail and those who are low-wage earners in retail and food services? They tend to be Fortunately, many of those low-wage earners, particularly those in retail and food services or delivery services, are also poor people. And these are the folk who are not being protected with PPE. They are being forced to go to work because if they don't, they will either get fired. And if they're fired, they cannot uh, – and with firing, there are new loopholes in the law that does not allow them to get unemployment. And so – you then had the rise, and this was not new to people like me, Vanessa Northington Gamble, a number of public health officials, scholars of medicine, um, it, was, it was no surprise that you were going to find that in particular areas, African Americans were going to be disproportionately hit, not because of pre-existing conditions. That was the way it was originally told, but it's largely because the structure of medical racism is something that lingers from the colonial period to the 21st century. And so it busted all of those, those fictions that said, oh, black people are immune because there are not a lot of cases in, in Africa. Oh, black people are immune from this because we're not really hearing about black people dying. And then as the wave of COVID deaths and cases started to happen, you started to see in terms of proportionality, a disproportionate number of black people who were either catching this virus or dying from it. 
And that's largely because of the ways that the medical industry has never really been about the equal treatment of black, unfortunately. Well, to what extent did we in in that time understand uh, the import of um, of how racism was impacting the care of of black people? I mean, was it so? People were talking about schools. People were talking about jobs. Were they talking about um, the, the 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 implication in medicine? Oh yeah, that was the thing. But it wasn't getting the kind of press. You know, the 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 same institutions that had um, been being sued for discriminatory behavior, schools, uh, you know, railways, buses, trolleys, all of those things. There was still, as we know segregated hospitals. And so in the early 1960s, Martin Luther King made a speech. And in fact, it was one that was not um, widely known because he didn't write it down. It was an extemporaneous one. And he was speaking to a new organization of black physicians. And essentially, he said that it was inhuman that medical racism was a legacy that black people in this country had to deal with. Right? And he talked about the inhumanity of those who would perpetuate anti-blackness, who would perpetuate white supremacy when people are at their most fragile and vulnerable, right? when people are sick, when they're, when they're ill. And so that, that unfortunately didn't capture the imagination of Americans, and it didn't unfortunately kind of um, – you know, kind of root itself into the narrative about the the civil rights movement, fortunately. But what you started to see, particularly by the end of the 60s and the early 70s with the creation of the Black Panther Party, you started to see on that uh, 10-point platform that medical care, health care, was one of the tenets, right, of that organization. You started to see the, the free clinics and the sickle cell Uh, testing that was going on. And so what we started to see with the kind of um, black nationalist and cultural nationalist program was an incorporation of medical care as a basic human right, because they understood that it was an institution that had really been affected negatively um, by white racism. When I also talk to, and I I give a lot of talks, not just at colleges and universities, I do a lot of um, community centers, I do a lot of medical and professional schools, Um, but when I'm talking to medical students and nursing students, particularly at predominantly white institutions, I will always get questions, well, what can we do? What can we do to stop this? And I always say, and this is not me being tongue-in-cheek, this is not me being hyperbolic, I always say, you all have to stop raising your children to be anti-black. Unless you think I'm making this up, I can pull from any number of studies from the federal government to the University of Chicago to the University of Virginia, and I can go on and on and on naming the schools, naming the studies. But I always choose UVA because I always say you should look at home. I did a postdoc, uh, postdoctoral fellowship at UVA from 2008 to 2009. So it's a place that I attended after UCLA. And in 2014, UVA conducted a study of almost 300 medical students and residents. 
uh, the majority of them were white. UVA is the University of Virginia is one of the country's most elite institutions. It was founded by Thomas Jefferson in the 18th century. You're you're breaking and, up. Uh, I okay, know. I, uh, I, yeah, I don't. I don't know how because I, I I don't have a landline. Unfortunately, um, I can try my earbuds okay. again. Hold on. Yeah. Okay. It okay. Seems to Why don't not we be try working. this? Why don't we try this? I'm going to take a break okay. because you're you're making okay. I can I can barely hear you, but you're making some very important po- points, especially about about how how at a very basic level we can begin to inform and educate our community and we start with our children. Um, I'm going to let you hang up. I'm going to go to a break. You call right back and I'll pick you up from there because you're okay. you're making okay. some very important points. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. You stay with us. We'll be right back. We're going to fix this. Okay, we've got we've got Dr. Owens, uh, Dr. Cooper Owens, back uh, on the line, and we're going to continue this discussion. I apologize, Dr. Cooper Owens. Are you there, Deidre? I am. I am. I hope you can hear oh, me. I can. You're having some. You. you um. I don't know if you're too close to the microphone on your phone or if you're not close okay, enough. I'm but try this again. Th- is this better? No? Yes. No, it's not. Um, okay. It's is a this breakup. Better? Are you hmm, talking through a microphone? A microphone? Uh, I'm speaking just through regular uh, iPhone earbuds. The first time I had the phone to my mouth. So I, yeah, let's see, yeah. hold on. I'm, I'm, I might be able to do something. Hold on one second. We're glad to have all of you with us. Our guest tonight, if you've just joined us, is Dr. Deidre Cooper-Owens, and she is a professor of history of medicine, which is really interesting because um, most of us don't realize I I was one of them until maybe about five or six years ago that didn't realize that um, there were historians who were mm-hmm. tracking race and racism in, in medicine. Um, I think, I think you've, you fixed it. Um, okay, great. Before we, tra- we had to go to this adjustment, you, were, you, you had made a point. Yes. About yes. in this pandemic, helping us to understand that this is something that continues to linger, mm-hmm. um, and we need to be mindful, especially where there's such that we we are limited in both access and access to uh, current 
treatment, and we are limited to by by cost, uh, not having mm-hmm. insurance, um, uh, all of those things. But but I want I want you to talk a little bit more as a historian to put this in a historical context, mm-hmm. because you know right. I have been uh, a proponent of. Um, um, many forms of reparation that this country owes a debt mm-hmm. to black people mm-hmm. and um, that we not miss the point about mm-hmm. to the extent that our humanity was violated. Right. Tell us, talk a little bit about how uh, black, how while in slavery and the in the uh, uh, post-construction period, were uh, do we have any information about how black people, even up until the 1960s, were being used in medical experimentation and un, unchecked trials? And mm-hmm. um, talk a little bit about that history. Sure. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, from the colonial period all the way to, mm-hmm. yeah, from the colonial period all the way to the the late 20th century. You know, I always tell people I was born in 1972, Tuskegee, uh, Tuskegee experiment ended in 1972. So this is something that ended in the late 20th century. Um, and the, the kind of archival sources that we have, the oral histories that we have, um, as historians, and I'm also a historian of, of slavery, so that's the particular um, focus of mine um, when I look at medicine, is that, um, you know, black people had been thought to be different human beings. Black people had been thought to be biologically distinctive human beings from other folks. And so there seemed to be an almost obsession of white physicians and white, as they were called, the scientists were called at that time, natural historians, who were who were interested in understanding the, the shape of the Negro foot compared to the white foot of the Negro clavicle compared to the white clavicle. But this is the racial fiction, and I talk about this in my book. And this is the kind of racial, what I call cognitive dissonance. So there might have been a scientific belief that black people were somehow biologically different. But when it came to experimentation, they didn't experiment on white folks. Experiments that happened, and I deal with the area of uh, obstetrics and gynecology primarily. They didn't say, oh, if black people and white people are different, we're going to just experiment on white people because they're different human beings. The racial cognitive dissonance comes in where they experimented on black people Pure white people, because at the end of the end of the day, they knew a black woman's uterus was the same as a white woman's uterus. They knew a cervix in a black person was the same as a cervix in a white person, and so there is that kind of you know the, the big lie is, is revealed once again. If you know that someone's so different, how do you have sex with someone who's a different species? How do you produce children with someone who is a different species? You clearly know that it's a racialized fiction, and yet they continue to embrace this ideology, this set of beliefs. It carried on. And so what I was, um, before um, the, the technical difficulties, uh, in the 
2016 study that came out of the University of Virginia that literally seemed as if it could have come out of 1730 or 1830 or 1917 because medical residents and, and in, uh, or, excuse me, and, and students at the University of Virginia's medical hospital in the 21st century still believed that black people experienced pain differently, meaning pain at all, or it was so slight as not to register. They believed that black people's blood coagulated or thickened more. They believed that black people's skin was thicker. I mean, there were all of these kinds of things, and these are essentially white medical students and residents who are going to graduate mm-hmm. from one of the country's top schools yeah. to treat all patients, and yet they believe in innate biological differences between black people and white people. And yeah, it is I'm, almost I'm, the same, yeah, as in the 18th in per- or 19th century medical textbook. In, in preparation for this um, episode, uh, I looked at the UVA study, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and for those for those of you who have seen it, there were two, 22 respondents, and um, when asked, are black nerve endings less sensitive than whites? Twenty percent indicated yes. <laughs> I was stunned I mean, by yeah. that. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. Um, so this is a particular um, historical time uh, continuum, time continuum. Mm-hmm. And how is that being transposed in mm-hmm. uh, today's contemporary yeah. um, um, history about mm-hmm. black people and hospitals and doctors yes. and being... Mm-hmm. Insured, uninsured. Right. How how is that? How, how what's your what's your examination of that mm-hmm. uh, in contemporary so, history? Mm-hmm. I think the the wonderful thing that has really taken off in ways that it hadn't just a decade ago is really the work of a lot of black midwives, doulas, OBGYNs, particularly in reproductive justice and birthing justice. That segment of our population, they sounded the alarm since the 1990s. I mean, of course, the work had been done well before then, but when when Loretta Ross and people like um, Lynn Lynn Roberts and those kinds of, of pioneers coined reproductive justice, at a global meeting of, of black women, but these were largely African-American women who had done that. They were doing the footwork ever since the 1990s, and they were pressuring governments. They were pressuring, pressuring local hospitals and hospital administrators to, to essentially try to do, not just, you know, try to do a better job, but they were, you know, telling them to do a better job. And so what has happened in a lot of urban areas, unfortunately not in rural areas, but in certain places like uh, in Northern California, San Francisco, Oakland, in Los Angeles, in New York, um, there have been um, laws and, and legislation that has been enacted by some of the mayors of these cities uh, to essentially account for the, 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 I call it explicit bias, but really the bias and the discrimination that exists um, in, in healthcare. Uh, that has created high maternal morbidity rates and infant mortality rates for uh, black people. 
what has been translated, I think, for this pandemic is essentially those same folk were saying the victim blaming has to stop. This is a structural and institutional issue that has always existed since this country was was created after the, the American Revolution. And so a lot of the work and the message from that particular segment has translated so well, I think, with COVID-19, because what it does is it reveals the social determinants of a, a racist and, and often anti-black medical uh, structure, and that includes hospitals, you know, many of the workers who are there, whether they be nurses, uh, doctors, uh, administrators, who have policies where black people are unfairly targeted. Um, where they're exploited, unfortunately, um, where these people still, have, you know, hold really outdated um, and unproved ideas about black people's bodies and health, but also their character. So, for instance, you know, uh, if black women are pregnant and there are complications, uh, they will say, oh, the black woman uh, had a poor diet. And even in commentaries, I just wrote an op-ed for the Houston Chronicle, I have to remind folks, that the average size of the American woman, regardless of race, is a size 14 or 16. And so black women are not the only overweight women. Most American women wear double digits. Most American women are considered, quote, unquote, overweight, but the rate of death and complications affects black women more. And so why is that? Is it just the patient's fault? Or is there something wrong with the structure? And so that's what we're seeing. And every day we can pick up the paper, we can listen to radio programs, we can read you know, blog entries and newspaper articles, and we can go on and on. And you start to see these stories that you know, across cities, across towns, black woman, black man, turned away from hospital twice, turned away from hospital four times, complaining of symptoms of COVID-19. They eventually die at home. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because black people I've seen are more, not believed. More re- yeah, I've seen more reports during this pandemic of right. people who have been turned away from the hospital with symptoms of COVID nineteen infection and go home mm-hmm. and die. And die. Uh, yeah, I'm, 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 yeah, yeah, we're yeah. lying. Let's be honest. Yeah, we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. You know when so, yeah. when when I first met Skip Gates, the mm-hmm. professor at Harvard, whatever he does, uh, I, I don't mean mm-hmm. to diminish him, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've known him for a long time. He told me about uh, a story about what happened to him in his small town in West Virginia when he was Mm -hmm. about 14 years old that he had injured his leg and his mother took him to the doctor. And while he was being examined, the doctor discussed the notion of what he was going to do with his life. Now, this was during Jim Crow, and uh, Mm -hmm. West Virginia was quite segregated. And he oh, yeah. explained to the doctor that he wanted to be a doctor when he grew up. Mm-hmm. And the doctor stopped talking, told him to walk, and his leg was so injured that he couldn't walk. But he, 
went out into the corridor at this ho- at this hospital and told him there's nothing wrong with your son's leg. He just has delusions of grandeur and well, was yep. at home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. But but let me let me ask you um, about the role. Two two things I w- would like to ask you about, and all of all of my interest in 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 this is around the debt that is owed. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. Uh, as citizens we have not had privileges of health care mm-hmm. when it was available. Right. Uh, the the studies that were done in black hospitals and black communities mm-hmm. across this nation. What was the role of the American Medical Association mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in all of this? And to what extent were black medical schools? Um, I read uh, that in... In the 1900s, there were 10 black medical schools, and Mm -hmm. by 1923, only two remained, and that was Howard and Meharry. Oh, and Meharry. So, what Mm -hmm. were the yeah? What were the role? What was Mm -hmm. the role in the systemic oppression Mm -hmm. of black people of the American Medical Association and our Mm -hmm. government in 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 that? Right. So, you know, and, and, and that's a wonderful question because it really shows the kind of, you know, some, some would say evolution. I, I would call it a devil, you know, a de-evolution um, of, of, the, of our system. So essentially when slavery was in place, and this is a really interesting thing when we move from slavery to freedom. And the reason I always start in slavery, A, that's my, my field of expertise, but also I think it, is, it shows some, some really revealing Linkages in terms of laws changing in this nation, um, and laws that are, were uh, put upon the black woman's body, all the way to the ways that the state and elite white men, typically sometimes women, but largely men, were able to access bo- uh, black bodies. And so, by that I mean one of the first laws that was put into place when when America was still a British colony had to do with black women's reproduction. So slavery started to be very lucrative for the British. All of a sudden, you have white men who are impregnating enslaved women or black women. And the English law said a child born to a white father took on the racial classification of the father. But slavery proved so lucrative that white British lawmakers changed the law so that now if a black woman is enslaved, not only does she pass her race along, her racial classification along to the child, but also her servitude. That had never been done in British common law. And that carried on when uh, the United States was then formed in the, 17, in the late 1780s. From the time of the 1780s until the end of the Civil War in 1865, you have a concerted effort by the richest white Americans, and they tended to be slave owners, and the government, who are protective of, of black women's fertility. They're not protective of black women's fertility because they care about black women. They're protective of black women's fertility because the only way that slavery can now be advanced since the international slave trade was ended 
1807 by the Constitution. So by 1808, you now have the most elite members of American society who are saying we now have to focus on reproductive health so that these women can essentially breed or birth more slaves. We don't care about the daddy. We don't care if daddy can be white, daddy can be black, daddy can be a Native American. We don't care about that. But we need to have these women healthy so that they then form, so that they can create and perpetuate our wealth. Guess what happens in freedom? And this is the interesting. Black people are now free. Black men and women are leaving. They are marrying legally. They are building up their communities. And all of a sudden, black women who have been praised for having the ability to have all of these kids, so-called, now when they're having children with their husbands, with the, the men that they choose to love, all of a sudden, these children are seen as financial burdens on society. Black, black people are now seen as dependent. And all of a sudden, you start to see by the 20th century the role of the welfare queen, who is this you know, sexually irresponsible um, exploiter of the system, right? Um, and then by the 21st century, she has become a little younger, and now she's the, you know, the, the baby mama who has, you know, all of these, these, these men who are a strain, a financial strain on society. And so in freedom, there is less attention to reproductive health, which is interesting. The other thing that is also interesting is the ways that medical experimentation starts to happen. So when someone is enslaved, they're considered movable property. So the, the, the idea of informed consent doesn't exist for human property, for an enslaved person. But in freedom, when we start to think about Tuskegee, which is from the 19, you know, the early 1900s until the late, 19th, uh, the, the late 20th century and the early 70s, right, this very long experiment, and then even Henrietta Lacks, they, informed consent existed. These people were never given that. Tuskegee uh, University or Tuskegee Institute, as it was called then, was essentially in the pockets of the federal government. And so they allowed this to happen. And so you start to see the ways that even black institutions, like a black college, is in the pocket of the government and doesn't resist. And so unfortunately, these lies are lost. And you see what happens with family members who don't have access to health care, family members who have been, uh, you know, un- unfortunately uh, kept in generational poverty um, and don't have access to basic human rights. And so a large part, like you, Janice, uh, uh, the reason I even thought about this dissertation so many years ago when I was enrolled at UCLA was to really think about what the debt that was, that was owed us. Um, and for me, it was about healthcare as a basic human right, healthcare that needed to be reformed, healthcare that treated black people, human beings worthy of excellent care. And so that was the real reason uh, that motivated me to do this kind of research, not just to get a dissertation, but what were the actual implications for our society? And how could I, at least in my lane as a scholar, lay bare? all of those historical gaps that existed so that when policy and legislation and movement building and institution building was being done, 
they would at least have a book like mine, a book like Harriet Washington, a book like uh, Keith Whaley's Bad Blood, you know, and I can go on and on and on, Vanessa Northington Gamble, these kinds of people, you know, they would be able to say, hey, there's a history here that has unfortunately not had a lot of gaps where black people have not received fair and equitable treatment from colonial America to the 21st century. Well, one one of the things that then comes up is to the extent that all of the larger medical communities, the pharmaceuticals, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, at one point there was a uh, black hospital reform mm-hmm. um, that went on at the at the turn of the century. Uh, as and the role of when we started to make the <clears throat> the transition from segregated to black people come to the other uh, to the white hospitals and and, mm-hmm. and care providers i i know when when i was growing up um there was only one white pediatrician in all of west palm beach that saw black patients and 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 that takes me back to my question about uh, black medical schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as I understand the history, it was very difficult for students from black medical schools to do their residencies and internships in white hospitals. So they had to rely mm-hmm. during Jim Crow on doing the mm-hmm. the, the, the residencies at mm-hmm. at black hospitals, mm-hmm. and then during this period where black hospitals were being closed yeah is this is this has this impacted and created some of the health care and access disparities that we see that there are not enough opportunities for black black students to go into mm-hmm. medicine and i'm talking about uh, mm-hmm. During the civil rights era, so we lost mm-hmm. a host, a whole population of what would have been medical students coming into the um, medical system. Right, right. So yeah, you, you I, get I mean, what, where I'm trying to travel I here. I do, I do. I, you know what? It, it's it's a really complicated question that has a lot of nuance. So, yes, uh, the, the quick answer is yes. As these institutions, these hospitals were being shuttered, these nursing schools were being shuttered, um, black people lost out, I mean, in every way that you can think about. Um, what happens with integration um, throughout the country is many of the white, quote, unquote, white hospitals that served disproportionately large numbers of black people become black hospitals, not necessarily because um, the administration becomes black, but largely because all of a sudden the whole patient population tends to be black. And what happens is when you have white flight, so all of this stuff is connected, right? A quote unquote tax base that, um, you know, was putting money into the pot, so to speak, has moved away. And so there's now less 
tax money that goes to these hospitals. What happens is you also have doctors and nurses who are not permanent mainstays, but almost like temp workers. Many of them are being bounced around from hospital to hospital. Once again, you have these medical beliefs, I mean, excuse me, these racialized beliefs about black people's bodies, their, um, their character, their pain tolerance, all of those kinds of things. And so this impacts folk. And then beyond that, when you have a patient population that continues to grow and swell and you have a medical professional class that is dwindling in many cases, these folk are not getting the kind of um, professional development and, and long-term educational training that you're supposed to have. And so mistakes are being made, oftentimes not intentionally, but because people might not have gone to a class or gotten the certification that they need because they are working, I mean, you know, long hours that impact their ability mm-hmm. to do a good job. And so it just coalesces into really something that is horrible. Um, and then as you yeah. said, with integration, a lot of folks don't want to go to those schools. They don't want to go to those hospitals. And so there is a real dwindling of the enrollment. And so, I mean, all of these things, once again, are are at play. And what happens is you now have a dearth of black hospitals, black schools of nursing. Uh, What happens are white hospitals become, quote, unquote, black spaces. And if you could see me, I'm using quotation marks, air quotes around that, become these black spaces where black people uh, are once again, unfortunately, mistreated. And the, the the only kind of pioneering work and good work tends to be in trauma care. So, you know, every it seems like almost every city, I have a place in Brooklyn, too. I'm in a commuter marriage, so my husband is still in Brooklyn. And I remember once he was sick and we took him to King, King County Hospital. And there was a joke with my friends, like, oh, gosh, why did you take him to King County? And I thought, well, it, it was Killer King, just like when I lived in L.A., Killer, Killer King County, right? And they're like, the only reason you would go there is if you had a gunshot wound or a stab, a stabbing, right? And so they tend to really excel in those areas, but not others. And so they can uh-huh. often be very dangerous places. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a break so that you can um, get ready for this second segment because I want to talk about the trauma, uh, mm-hmm. not only of the trauma of this, the periods where um, black black healthcare and the American Medical Association and everybody else, including the government, were really uh, guilty of sometimes murderous neglect, and it was intentional. Um, the dispensation of the efforts of black people to ensure that black people were getting some form of health care and attention. But I want to talk about in the second segment how that has traumatized our mindset about medical care, seeking medical care. And Mm -hmm. especially in this pandemic, how we begin to interpret for our children what we are reading on the news about black health disparities and and their complications with this virus and how we 
begin to address the fear. We are living in a period during Mm -hmm. this pandemic that black people Mm -hmm. have every reason to be fearful, Mm -hmm. to be at high alert, to be stressed because the people who are at risk and not just pre-existing conditions, but also at risk because they have to take the risk. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and I'm Janice Graham, and our guest tonight, Dr. Deidre Cooper-Owens. She is a professor in the history of medicine and director of humanities in medicine program at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Um, Professor Cooper-Owens is also the director of the program in African-American history at the Library Company of Philadelphia. It is the oldest, the country's oldest cultural institution, and it was founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1731. You stay with (laughs) us. Our number is 347-838-9852. On this second uh, segment, we're also going to be talking about what this all means in terms of the formula, the algorithm on reparations. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Shout out to the hip-hop public health. All the healthcare workers on the front line. Together, we can make a difference. What's good, y'all? This is Del C. Fresh coming at you live and direct. All of y'all out there, got a couple of things I want to talk to y'all about. Wash your hands, everybody. And everybody, wash your hands. Come on, wash your hands, everybody. And everybody, wash your hands. My people up town, wash your hands. My people downtown, wash your hands. People from the East Coast, wash your hands. People from the West Coast, wash your hands. First and foremost, season be close. Take your time, wash. Use a lot of soap from the front to the back, back to the front. In the hook where you at, that's exactly what we want. If you decide to leave, please take heed. Talk a social distance, at least six feet. On the bus or the train, riding in your car. The further you're away, then the better. How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. No, I say niggas are doing everything. 
we they always say we're doing everything, right? We don't read it every time the white people come down the block. We don't push them out their neighborhood and throw rocks and start hitting them. We don't bother the white people around our neighborhood, but when we get in the white neighborhood, they they just push us out. Yeah, everybody with a system with nothing, you know, with a piece of dirt, dogs. I mean, that's the way you treat an animal. I mean, God, we're human beings. You don't treat other people like that. And it don't take no X-ray to see right through my smile. I know I'll be on the go uh, And it ain't no drink out there That can numb my soul Oh no uh, All we want to do is take the chains off All we want to do is break the chains off All we want to do is be free All we want to do is be free All we want to do is take the chains off All we want to do is break the chains off all we want to do is make the print. All we want to do is Can you tell me why? Every time I step outside, I see my niggas die. Oh, I'm letting you know that it ain't no gun they make that can kill my soul. Oh, no. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. And thank you so much for being with us. You're listening to Our Common Ground. If you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can come to Blog Talk Radio dot com backslash OCG or you can continue to listen on your smart devices and that works too for us. Thank you for uh being with us our guest tonight, Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens. And she is a professor in the history of medicine. And we're talking about medicine, race and racism. And in the second segment, what we want to do is to talk Dr. Cooper Owens about the trauma, the fear uh, in this pandemic. Um, There are very few people who do not realize that race matters and there is racism and that there is so much... uh, of the same old, same old that affects us in everything um, that we um, face and experience um, receiving inferior medical treatment by the healthcare industry, being subjected to high rates of preventable medical errors, race. Uh, and racism because we are the uninsured more often uh, than non-Hispanic whites, a status that frequently results in substandard care. And thank you for being with us, and thank you for your work. How how did you get into medical history? (laughs) Yeah, that that is a question for someone who is really not interested um, 
I wanted to write about black women. And I have to be honest, I've always had an undergrad. I was a math comm major. I should have been doing what you're doing. <laughs> and I, after, after working at a local cable access station, it, it, it included working with some little, uh, I remember, puppet called Monkey Shines on America. And I was like, I don't think this is the career for me. <laughs> so when I got into grad school, I remember um, I always spoke. I always did a lot of public speaking even back then. And when I was at UCLA, I did the uh, conversation. I facilitated a conversation between Jeanetta Cole and um, oh, I forget the, the brother's name. He's a civil rights pioneer, Jane, Reverend James Lawson. And so like any good student, I read her, her latest book, which was called Gender Talk, co-written Shepherd of Spellman. And there was something in, in the book that captured my attention. And it's about for about two or three sentences, not a lot. It talked about this man named James Marion Sims who had done experimental research on and experimental surgeries on enslaved women. And I was dumbfounded. So my mother was a science teacher at the time. She had a degree uh, in professional biology. I called her and I said, have you ever heard of that? And like you, she said, no, just the, the Tuskegee experiment. In fact, this is before people knew about Henrietta Lacks because this was probably about 2004 or five, And so I was fascinated and I was also disappointed because I had gone to two HBCUs. I went to Bennett College, uh, HBCU for women, and I also had gotten a master's degree in African-American studies from Clark Atlanta University and never learned about this. And so I was determined that I was going to understand um, this, this aspect of uh, history that had just been, at least for in my, you know, from my vantage point, so underwritten about. And the only conversations that were going on, quite honestly, were with other historians of medicine. And so, uh, as I started to do more work and and started to to look at the sources, I realized Sims was not unique. You know, he was just the person who had the the most recognizable name. But there were all of these folks who had been doing medical experimentation on on black people, and so. Once I graduated and once the book came out a few years later, you know, I made it a mission of mine to do um, work that would take me outside of the classroom. So whether it's doing wonderful um, community-based radio programming like this or writing, writing op-eds or speaking to community groups, um, you know, mentoring uh, black people who are coming out of programs, you know, where they want to deal with race, racism, and medicine and public health. I, I've made myself available because I think that this is a part of the puzzle that helps to put the context there for why things are the way that they are, that it's not just mm-hmm. our negligence, you know, and our pathology, but that there is a longer history. And once we see that, we can advocate with even more knowledge uh, about mm-hmm. how to dismantle a system that is not healthy for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, 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 I continually uh, concern myself, worry um, about the idea that people in our community are not getting enough help around Mm -hmm. the collective trauma that Mm -hmm. we have had to punch through. Um, Mm -hmm. And it is not just of my generation, but it has uh, a continuum throughout generations uh, from mm-hmm. 
you know, the, it, we 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 call it survival, we call it struggle, but that it makes it no less traumatic. And right. Right. I, I think that for for my generation um, and um, my parents' generation. This is the first plague that we have ever had to face, and we haven't resolved all of the issues related to race and uh, the medical um, and healthcare industry. So mm-hmm. let's let's talk about that trauma for okay. a minute, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and and how we can begin. To bring comfort to ourselves. Last week I was saying, you yeah. know, we have to do what our grandmother taught us to do yeah. in terms of using our common sense yeah. and doing what we have to do. And but we have always mm-hmm. had to quarantine our children. And I played that clip mm-hmm. of uh, black children in the in the nineteen seventies. Those were children mm-hmm. who had moved into black children who had moved into a previously segregated neighborhood in Queens talking to a reporter. And so our children are having to explain this stuff to themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we begin to give in our community some guidance around dealing with this these traumatic events. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know, and it that's, is for me. That, mm-hmm. that, that's on top of having to now yeah. deal with Ahmad, the murder of Ahmad Aubrey yeah. and the murder of mm-hmm. um, Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. during mm-hmm. A, a pandemic. Right, what's, right. What's your, um, what's your counsel? You know, my, my counsel is, and it is, it's it's quite simple, but it is in many ways radical when you live in a society where you are not loved and what you represent is, is, is not loved. And so I always start with what I call methodology of love. How does one practice love? And it goes back to what you were saying our ancestors taught us. The first thing is, in a very real sense, I am a big proponent of laying hands on people. And and what that means is I, I'm mm. not talking about when when someone would touch you. Now, that's very hard to do in a pandemic when (laughs) social distancing is the order of the day. And so how do we negotiate? How do we make sense of laying hands on folk um, during a pandemic where our touch has been legislated um, by the state? And so what I often remind people is our touch has always been legislated by other folks. But whenever we would gather together in our quiet spaces and create our most sacred spaces, we loved on each other. And so if that is not by touch in this particular case, we love on each other. We love on each other through the advocacy that we do. It was really through the protest of black people who were outraged about the injustice that happened with with Aubrey, with Brianna. You know, may, may they rest in peace um, because they did not, die uh, peaceful deaths, you know, at such young ages, but it was the love for them, um, for our collective community. And so when you begin there, um, it helps to at least make the way a little clear. Um, beyond that, I think about the ways that people are, are 
like literally reaching back to the things that made sense. So in all of these spaces where black people live um, and they are trying to kill themselves, mutual aid societies are cropping up. Black people created mutual aid societies because they weren't being insured in the 1700s and the 1800s. So they had mutual aid societies where they put money in a pot and they paid for funerals. They took care of orphans. They took care of widows. They sent people to school if they saw that they were talented. And so mutual aid societies, it, it warmed my heart to be able to hear that again in the 21st century. You have midwives and doulas who are stepping into the gap, you know, so that when these uh, women and, and these birthing people are in the throes of childbirth, Unlike doctors who who are not taught to touch patients because of a lawsuit, here you have folks who are saying, wait a minute, I've got you, and they're wiping foreheads and brows, right? And so in a very real sense, when love is applied, right, it creates at least a clearer path. I'm not saying an easier path, but it creates a clearer path because when you come from that perspective, when you are laying hands on people, uh, even in the moment of a COVID-19 uh, that is a respiratory-borne uh, viral infection, you can still demonstrate love um, in, in, in various ways. So, yeah. you know, for me, there's someone in my generation, D. Nice, you know, the DJ who comes from the Boogie Down Bronx, you know, and D. Nice has been having quarantine parties because, the, you know, in the medical industry, we say, oh, that's music therapy. But without having that knowledge, without having that language, he knew that music, that there was something that could connect people across generations. And so he, he brought his talent to bear for us because he knew that there was going to be something that triggered a memory and emotion, right, where we would feel good. And during that first week or so, all you saw was thank you. Thank you, brother, for healing us. Thank you. This is needed, right? Um, Scott and, and Erica Badu, another kind of generational duo, you know, they did the same thing in a battle that really turned into a love fest. And so even in those small ways, you can see the ways in which we have incorporated healing politically. Um, so whether it's advocating for someone to, to receive justice, even in death, um, whether it's through arts and culture, whether it's through the institution building of mutual aid societies, whether it is through the training that, you know, what happened during the maternal, uh, maternal, um, week in, in, in May, um, all of these things are happening, and black people, black men and black women are at the forefront of this, and so it is showing that even in the midst of trauma, we need to be in control of our healing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to um, add that, you know, in, in, this, in this period of fear, you know, for instance, I'll tell anybody, and most of you all have heard me say it, um, I'm a high-risk person. I'm a um, cancer survivor. And the drugs that help me survive cancer uh, kill some other things <laughs> and do some damage. Mm-hmm. Right. And my family is in Boston, and I am down here in Florida with Governor do nothing and lying DeSantis mm-hmm. and his mm-hmm. comrades Senator Rick Scott and Mario Rubio mm-hmm. and I am scared to death. Right. I have been quarantined for eleven weeks now and 
You mm. know, I can do my, I'm learning how to bake. I'm following what you're cooking yeah. and <laughs> knowing that I'm never going to be able to cook what you cook in your kitchen. But I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to domesticate mm-hmm. myself. Um, I didn't realize dusting was a, Somehow you had to have some skill, but um, right. <laughs> I am scared to death yeah. that I will not see that something will happen, uh, uh, you know, like uh, something will happen, and I will never see my grandchildren or my daughter, right. my only child, again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. she, she survived. Yeah. And and that's a real fear, mm-hmm. and people scared, fearful about going into the grocery store. People mm-hmm. are fearful, um, and it's not a good thing. And you're right. And one of the things in our community that has been taken away is that Sunday morning um, session where mm-hmm. people that you know you love. Mm-hmm. And that that has your back. That Sunday morning mm-hmm. getting up time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I'm just uh, fearful. Right. Right. And I know I am not alone. Yeah. And thank you, Michelle Odom, in our chat room, who says she's my sister wife and she's loving me. So, we have to help people get punched past the fear yeah. to get to the yeah. reality. Because sometimes we get fearful and we get stupid. Fear can cause you mm-hmm. to be stupid. Um, Like, you know, um, my granddaughter said to me that, who is a medical examiner, and she said to me that she didn't tell me about my daughter having been infected with COVID-19 until after she was out of the woods with it because she knew that I would get on an airplane and land in Boston to see You know, and and people are having those complex and complicated responses uh, to this, and then you can't trust the government and what they say. Mm -hmm. I don't trust any of the statistics. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we have to. You're right. Music, and I mean, I like that idea. I'm 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 real down with the um, with the dance thing. You know, so. Um, I'm just hoping that we we understand that what we have to do is we have to begin to find what the bridges that have brought us safely across in a different right. way. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and and sure. I do want to uh, let the audience know that you just finished working with Teaching Tolerance and the Southern Poverty Law Center on their podcast series about how to teach U.S. Mm-hmm. His, US slavery and mm-hmm. was listed in Time Magazine as an acclaimed expert on U.S. history 
in its annual 25 Moments from American History mm-hmm. that matter right now. And we are so glad <laughs> to have you as an Our Common Ground voice. So yeah, if, if, we put, if we put the current causes of trauma in the black community in the context of the historical framework that you set up, where exactly are we? Ooh, man. We, oh, my goodness, this is, yeah, this is this is a, a deep question because this pandemic, that's the thing. So this country has been through pandemics before but never in this way, right, except for the 1918 um, influenza, but we weren't born. <laughs> and our parents, you know, yeah, didn't, yeah. Uh, you know, they didn't experience that. Um, and so this is this is a, a different thing because, you know, I, I think about the ways that people in our communities have historically expressed themselves. Um, we've all, always gathered, I always say, in our quiet and our sacred spaces. So whether that be dancing or worshiping or house parties, if you live in a country, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and also the low country in South Carolina. So, you know, in a, in a little teeny town, all you would do is go to people's houses and sit and talk. And so to ha- to not have that available is tough. And like you, I've been, you know, I'm in a commuter marriage. I have been, I remember I go to New York every three, three and a half weeks. And I told my husband March 10th when he dropped me off at the airport, hey, I'll see you, you know, in, in a couple yep. of weeks. And it's now May. Um, and mm-hmm. no one has entered this house, um, you know. And so that that is tough because, there is a part of me that has, no matter where I've lived, whether it's Nebraska, which is one of the whitest spaces I've ever lived, um, or it is, you know, other places, I've always had a connection to a community where I could lay hands on them and and, and vice versa. So I think that is probably culturally that's tough because we don't have access to each other in, in those ways. It is also, and you bring up a really great point, there's always been distrust, but how in the world is a community that has had such a contested and fraught relationship with the government supposed to have faith when at the beginning of this, I remember nearly every colleague and friend of mine who was a medical practitioner and or a scholar or public official in this field, we couldn't understand, just intellectually, we couldn't understand why the CDC was telling folks not to wear masks at the very beginning. Yes. Yes, And we would have these conversations, and it did not make sense to us because we said if you're supposed to contain droplets, it would seem that everybody's droplets would be contained with a mask, whether you were sick or, or healthy. And so then after about a good month or so, all of a sudden wear masks. Well, how were you supposed to also access masks if folks start to hoard them and be greedy? And not, and not practice the kind of collectivism that is important in these times. And so when you then have people who are saying, well, I don't believe it anyway, well, the federal government flip-flops on what they presented to yes. the American people. You yeah. know, and yeah. so, you know, and, 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 yeah, and so those are also the kinds of ways where I also say, you know, we can, we can point our fingers and, and, and look our noses down on certain members within our community, but we also have to understand that there's a longer history of not trusting the government when the government also flip-flops on things that are supposed to be helpful. 
And so, it, you know, so those are a lot of the things where I see yeah, a one, lot of one the of, one of the first things that occurred to me when my doctor called me back in January mm-hmm. to warn me because of my uh, a pre-existing condition, and after I got off the phone with him, because he was saying to me, uh, you need to shut down your life right now, mm. and that was in January. Mm. It was the day after my birthday, which is why I remember it, and then right. I started noticing that uh, Starbucks, that the 1,400 Starbucks stores in China had all closed down. They had all closed mm-hmm. down. But but anyway, those were the signs. But the, the first thing that, that really struck me was with all of the children in our community, black children have the highest incident of asthma. Mm-hmm. Yes. Black people mm-hmm. have the highest incident of COPD. Mm-hmm. Why isn't the CDC starting to mm-hmm. warn people about those yep. health disparities? What, what's going mm-hmm. on here? And right. um, nobody particular was answering a question. And then I was getting mad at the media because all the talking heads mm-hmm. were talking about the he- black health disparities, but they hadn't been talking mm-hmm. about black health disparities before. So, right. Right. You know, so right. it all creates um, um, a distrust compounded by a, uh, uh, legitimate reasons to distrust both the medical community, the government, mm-hmm. the um, the everybody else, the CDC, the NIH, the mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody who who would have been responsible for uh, ringing the bell, and nobody mm-hmm. was ringing the bell for our community right. until the stats started coming in, That's and right. the stats That's wouldn't have right. come in until Milwaukee. It was either Milwaukee or Detroit that yep. started publishing the the, the mm-hmm. racial uh, statistics on That's this. Right. Yep. So yep. I I think I think that we have to take pause and begin to understand that here again we're on our own. Even white people are saying they're on their own, <laughs> but we are mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. on our own on on own yeah. uh, on, mm-hmm. on this, and yeah. that we really and one of the things that I was so so thankful f- for for you and other uh, historians is to remind us that Tuskegee was real. Oh yeah, and it happened in oh, a yeah. black. It happened in a black institution. That's right. That is so. <laughs> Which and all of the staff and the personnel that was administering this experiment were black. That's right. They were just being dictated to by the yeah. white government. So mm-hmm. we have to we have to put all of these things in a context where we can begin to reflect on mm-hmm. the lies, the propaganda machine that yeah. the White House has going on. Um, I mean, you know, they could they could talk about um, how credible 
Dr. Tony Fauci is, and they can talk about how mm-hmm. incredible Dr. Deborah Briggs is, but none of them have any credibility with me because if they had any mm-hmm. credibility, they would been working for, they wouldn't be working within the autocracy that is trying to change the landscape of truth about this pandemic. So that's right, what I have to say about yeah. it. <laughs> really? no, I hear you. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting, yeah, about that whole um, Tuskegee, because I, I am glad that you brought that back. It was, uh, I had actually my final exam for my students. I had them look at two sources, because we, I had them read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Black. And many of them, and this uh-huh. is the thing, I am not in this position, I don't teach a lot of history students anymore. I'm teaching the people who want to be doctors, nurses, physical therapists, you know, uh, research scientists uh-huh. in the medical field. Many of them had not heard of it. And granted, these are young people. Um, however, what is really interesting, I had two letters. So one was the kind of, you know, uh, you know, federal government, NIH, well, this is the study and this is what the study has done. And so a man named Dr. Irwin Schatz, he wrote to, to uh, Dr. Donald Rockwell at Henry Ford Hospital and he was very critical. It was about maybe a paragraph. And essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, this is unethical. We are members of the medical community. We have guidelines. Why are you continuing this? And this is a letter written in the 1960s, in the mid-60s. Uh-huh. Why are you continuing uh-huh. this on these people without their knowledge, without having a, an actual control? How many lives are you willing to, to let lose? So here was this one, only one white boy who, because he knew they would listen to him, or at least he assumed they would because he was a white boy. And so yep, he I remember, yep. Yeah, and they, guess what? Nothing happened. They ignore yep, I, what he says. Yeah, speak yeah. out about it. Nobody listens. Incredible. Uh, yeah. some, some years back I read a history that was written about the Tuskegee mm-hmm. experiment, and I was mm-hmm. just even with understanding uh, American history, was just simply astounded by the response. Mm-hmm. That man, yeah. that man was was removed from his position because right. he, sure was. he was calling the alarm um, and wrote only one paragraph. I, I, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the things that we have to understand, you know, black people tend, we're we're good people. We're the barometer, Mm -hmm. the moral Mm -hmm. barometer of this country. And black people Mm -hmm. tend to believe that none of this stuff is intentional, that somehow we stumbled into uh, infecting hundreds of black men with syphilis, Mm -hmm. that we stumbled Mm -hmm. into the uh, sterilization of hundreds Mm -hmm. of black women in North Carolina uh, for sterilization. Somehow it happened by mistake. And I think it's really important to understand exactly how um, these things are real. Yeah. And to yeah. be able to reflect that, you know, we can be we can be tuned into our jobs, we can be tuned into twelve hundred dollar welfare payment that they sent people mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to we have to struggle through. We have to punch through the reality that this is real. That it is not something that was conjured up in in China, and now we're caught up mm-hmm. in it. Where right. you know, I, I we have to understand that the people who work in the nursing homes where all those people died, they were mostly black and brown people, mostly right. black. Right. And yep. we, and in addition to making the changes that we have to make in the way we operate in our lives, we have to somehow make some mental adjustments around what is important and how much we're willing to risk and what we're willing to risk. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I, 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 I see the black nurses and they take an oath mm-hmm. of some kind, and I see the black yeah. doctors and they take an oath of some kind. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, to what extent are people willing to have their jobs at Burger King and McDonald's and, mm-hmm. and you know, and I want to remind people, Deidre, I do want to remind people that the people who are saving our asses are the janitors, the people who That's drive right. the garbage trucks, who pick up the garbage, right. the people who clean the hospitals and clean the That's nursing right. the homes. CNAs. That's the CNAs, right. That's yes. Right. That they are the mm-hmm. people who are saving us, mm-hmm. and yep. there are no other saviors coming. That's right. Yeah, and these are the people because who we don't want to give a living wage to, who we don't want to provide with protective gear and equipment, mm-hmm. who we want to mm-hmm. disrespect because mm-hmm. because the line at Red Lobster on Mother's Day was too long. You're right. And oh wow! Their lives. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, it, it is incredible to me um, because before I entered academia a little later in life, and so I often tell folks, especially in academia, where I've learned this can sometimes be a family business. Um, so I was one uh-huh. of the few students who didn't come from uh, a family where everybody had PhDs or, you know, had worked at a university. And yeah. so uh-huh. it was always interesting when we would have our little parties or, you know, what have you, get-togethers, and they're, oh, well, you know, what did you do before before you came here? And I was like, I worked a, a string of low-wage jobs. My last two jobs before I, before I entered my PhD program, I worked at Sephora and attempt at a self-storage unit. Um, in Atlanta, Georgia, where I went through defective asbestos parts. So, you know, a part of this was I remember going through those boxes of defective asbestos parts, and we didn't even have gloves. And so one day I said, "Um, shouldn't we have gloves if this stuff actually has asbestos? We were on the concrete in the summer in Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia, right? And so it was, you know, it's always a reminder to me about how we treat low-wage earners and low-wage workers and expect so much from them, and we give so little back to them. So you're right. Those you're, are the people right. who are saving our lives. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has yeah. been a, a wonderful uh, discussion, and I hope people will follow up by purchasing, buying, reading. Thank you. Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. Uh, It's UGA Press, and um, you won the Darlene Clark Hine Book Award for it. 
But I want to talk yeah. to you before we have to go, uh, and we mm-hmm. only have a, a little more time. Uh, mm-hmm. You're working on a second book project that's looking at mental oh, yeah. illness during the era of U.S. shadow slavery. Yeah, I, you know, a second and you're, third. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, oh, okay, okay. And um, you're also yeah. writing a biography of Harriet Tubman yeah, that the, yeah. examines her through the lens of disability. Yes, indeed. She now. Yeah, when are we going to be able to put our hands on all this? I look. What, well, you already read all those jobs I asked. You. <laughs> Once I can finally breathe, uh, you know. See, that's when you have had a little taste of, of look the broke life. Sometimes you don't want to go. And so, like, when are you going to give up one of those jobs? I'm like, when I need to. Um, but I'm hoping to to finish. Um, I would say most of the research about Harriet Tubman because that's the book I really. To, to like kind of not being as heavy as the other book that's going to take a lot of years of research and a lot of years of, of writing it and all of those kinds of things because I have to go to different archives. Um, but with Harriet Tubman, I think what, and without giving away, think of her as, as we should, this strong freedom fighter, you know, who, who traversed, you know, unknown lands to get to freedom and brought others back with her to freedom. But what's really important is this was a woman who suffered from a lifelong disability. This was a woman who was uh, possibly um, uh, infertile because she never had children when she was married uh, under slavery. She she never had kids. She was in the prime of her life in terms of childbearing, uh, eventually adopted because she had such a desire to, to be a mother. She suffered from what today we would call traumatic brain injury and Although she was illiterate all of her life, she lived to be in her 90s, the thing that is most impressive to me about Harriet Tubman was this woman was literally a genius. And I say that not in this kind of like uncritical phrase, but here was an illiterate woman who had been leased out to different slave owners in that that Eastern Shore community since she was six years old, made to do work that would would break, like, you know, love threats at six years old, seven years old, in the cold water with her bare hands. And when she came of age, she had the, the, the gumption to go to her owner and say to him, you know I'm a good worker. You know I'm strong. I'll pay you $60 a year if you allow me to lease my services to people in the community. And he said, okay. So here's this woman, goes to this man, says, let me lease my services to other people in the community, and I, in fact, I'll give you this much, but the rest is mine. And she does it, and that's how she learned the topography of the, that swampy machine. That's how she got to know all those men who worked on the docks. That's how she was able to hatch out a plan of escape. And she was just brilliant, brilliant strategist. And so that's well, what I want to do. Forward to it. Yeah, she was a bomb. Like I love her. So, I mean, she was just such a fascinating person. Yeah. Well, we're hoping that you can come back and more, and the next Thank time you. we'll have enough time to talk about what you're cooking. <laughs> oh, my and I love the red dress, but the red jumpsuit was great. <laughs> Thank you. 
thank you. I, I think I chose right. My husband would have got me talked about at night, so I think I chose right. <laughs> thank you so much. Our guest has been Dr. Deidre Cooper Owens, and uh, we have really transformed truth to power in this discussion. Thank you so much, and I look forward to you coming thank back you. again. All right. Thank you Bye-bye. for having me. You have a great night. Bye-bye. And for those of you who are joining us, sorry we couldn't take your calls. We had a lot to talk about um, tonight. But um, next week we're going to try to bring it down a little bit, and I'm going to talk about my Friday night show that I'm planning uh, because we're not getting enough time in to really talk about current events and news. And so we're going to be doing a news and news examination, analysis, gossip uh, show starting in June, uh, the second week of June, on a Friday night before our common ground. I don't know if you'll be interested, but we'll be right here. It'll, of course, be at 10 p.m. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. You stay safe and talk back as much as you can.
daddy, what that there? And why that under there? And oh, daddy, oh, hey, daddy, hey, look it over there. Hey, what they doing there? And where are they going there? And daddy, can I have that big elephant over there? Hey, who that in my chair? And what she doing there? And oh, daddy, oh, hey, daddy, can I go over there? Hey, daddy, what's a square? And where do we get air? And daddy, can I have that big elephant over there? My quizzical kid, man, he doesn't want anything here. He's forever demanding to know who, what, and why, and where. Inquisitive child, and sometimes the questions get wild. Like, daddy, can I have that big elephant over there? Don't wanna comb my hair and wear my teddy bear. And oh, daddy, oh, hey, look at the cowboy coming there. Hey, can I have a pair of boots like that to wear? And daddy, can I have that big elephant over there? The time will march the years will go the little fellas gonna grow I gotta tell him what he needs to know Help him along so he'll know right from wrong gotta make him strong As life parade goes trudging by you'll need to know some reasons why I don't have all the answers but I Plan so he'll be a man. You give a kid your best, and you hope he'll pass the test when you finally send him out into the world somewhere. But though he's grown, I'm betting I never will forget. And Daddy can't have had a big over there. Hey, what they doing there? And how you work that there? And old Daddy, oh he, Daddy, he what that say up there? Hey, Daddy, what is fair? How come I got a share? And Daddy, can I have a big elephant over there? You don't need no baggage 
And don't forget you can find us on Facebook at Janice Our Common Ground And follow us on Twitter at Janice OCG And subscribe to our website at OurCommonGround.com Good night and thank you for being with us